Ladies and gentlemen, good evening and a warm welcome. I'm Christopher Cook and I'm uh, looking after our proceedings this evening. Uh, a doubly warm welcome to be here and to hear a little bit about uh, the Mikado, but also because you're going to see one of the very great English National Opera productions. I've lost count of a number of times I've seen it, but I think I'm almost getting to number 10. Um, and I still feel each time I see it that there are new corners and new excitements to be had. A quick note, please make certain you've turned off your phones, no recording, all the usual things, no cameras uh, and nothing else that might sing, dance and make an unseemly noise, uh, uh, which we don't want. Um, the Mikado was born out of a crisis in the always extraordinary touchy relationship between Arthur Sullivan and William Schwenk Gilbert. Their previous opera, Princess Ida, was flagging at the box office. So Richard Dolly Cart, who had them under an extraordinary tight contract, put them on notice that he needed a new work in just six months' time. Sullivan replied to Cart that it is impossible for me to do another piece of the character of those already written by Gilbert and myself. You can hear the artist stamping his foot here. Gilbert, who already started work on a new libretto in which people fall in love against their wills after taking a magic lozenge, was surprised to hear of Sullivan not being pleased. And he wrote to him asking him to reconsider. But the composer, firm to the last, replied on the 2nd of April 1884 that he had come to the end of my tether with these operas. I have been continually keeping down the music in order that not one syllable of yours should be lost. I should like to set a story of human interest and probability where the humorous words would come in a humorous, not serious situation, and where, if the situation were a tender or dramatic one, the words would be of similar character. Well, in the end, it was Gilbert who climbed down by agreeing to abandon the magic lozenge plot. <laughs> and so, on the 20th of May, 1884, he sent Sullivan a sketch of the plot that would become the Mikado. The opera, of course, taps into a growing fascination in Europe at the end of the 19th century with all things Japanese, and we're going to talk about that. But as Gilbert later told one inquiring journalist, I cannot give you a good reason for our piece being laid in Japan. It afforded scope for picturesque treatment, scenery and costume, and I think that the idea of a chief magistrate who is judge and actual executioner in one, and yet who could not hurt a worm, may perhaps have pleased the public, which of course also meant please Gilbert. That execution is, of course, Coco, who wants to marry the pretty Yum Yum, who is in love with Nanki Poo, the son of the Mikado, who has run away to the town of Titipu in order not to have to marry Katisha, a woman of a certain age chosen for him by his father. As everything, it's upside down. This is the topsy-turvy world of Gilbert and Sullivan. The Mikado is the ninth of the 14 operatic collaborations between Gilbert and Sullivan. It opened on the 14th of March, 1885 in London, where it ran at the Savoy Theatre for 672 performances, which was the second longest run of any work of musical theatre and one of the longest runs of any theatre piece up to that particular date. Before the end of 1885, it was estimated that in Europe and America, at least 150 different companies were producing the Mikado. Well, we have a trio of guests tonight to tell us about making music here at the Coliseum and this revival of Jonathan Miller's production of the Mikado. 
Elaine Tyler Hall, who has directed this revival of the original production, Mark Biggins, who is the chorus master here at English National Opera. But our first guest tonight is Leslie Downer, who's written extensively about Japan, including two books about Japanese cookery, one for the BBC that I have to say is never really off my kitchen table. My great passion is Japan, she says, and she's just finished writing The Shogun Quartet, four novels set in the tumultuous 15 years after American ships first arrived off Japan's coast in 1853, sparking a civil war in Japan, an extraordinary regime change, and, and, and an amazing transformation of Japanese society. Will you please welcome our first guest, Leslie Downer. Leslie, welcome. Um, look at my notes. Can you say a little bit about why was Western Europe fascinated by Japan at the end of the 19th century? What was it that Gilbert was tapping into? Well, this was a huge craze. Um, this was a huge craze which had actually been going on for about half a century and which swept um, America and Europe and England. And it was called Japonism. Um, and basically, Everybody's houses, the shelves of shops were completely full of Japanese goods. Um, for quite a long time, people had been aware of how exquisitely beautiful Japanese craftsmanship was. And the West had been importing um, lacquerware, pottery, blue and white porcelain, fans, um, paper umbrellas, metalwork, and everybody had been snapping this up. Um, and many shops, including, of course, Liberties, founded by Arthur Laysenby Liberty in 1875, had huge stocks of Japanese goods. Um, so everybody was very obsessed with this beautiful work. Um, one of the reasons for the interest at this time was because it had been unavailable. Japan had been closed to the West for 250 years, um, and little bits and pieces of Japanese work had come out. And then in about 1860, Japan opened to the West, trade treaties were signed, and suddenly there was an absolute flood of glorious Japanese artifacts, swords, among other things, armour, all flooding the West. Turning to the other member of the partnership, Sullivan, how did he come across, for example, the Miyasama Chorus? And is, is this authentically Japanese? Say a little bit about this very important tune that runs through the piece. It's very important. Um, so, besides all these goods coming from Japan, there had been a few individuals who little by little had gone and lived in Japan, um, starting from literally 1858. And one of these was Algernon Mitford, and he was the grandfather of the famous Mitford sisters. And he lived in Japan right through the Civil War period that preceded the toppling of the shogun and the coming of Emperor Meiji to power. Um, and he was a very interesting man, but he also saw Japan when all the samurai were wearing this amazing armor with kind of mustaches, masks with mustaches, fighting with swords and spears. Um, so he knew all about that period. And the song that was sung by the emperor's troops, the Mikado's troops, as they marched on Edo, which is now Tokyo, to topple the shogun, was the very first marching song ever in Japan. They didn't have marching songs before, and it was the Mia Summer Chorus. Um, and of course, Mitford and Gilbert and Sullivan were all part of the same kind of rather splendid social circles in Victorian England. So um, 
Gilbert says it was him and Sullivan says it was him, that each of them says it was them that went to Mitford and said, can you give us a really authentic, wonderful Japanese you know, melody that can introduce the Mikado? And Mitford hummed the Miyasama chorus. Miyasama, Miyasama, it means my lord, my lord. And then the next line is, what is that sparkling in front of your horse? And the answer comes in the next verse, which is, it is the banner of the imperial troops of Japan. Fantastic. And, and, and that, of course, is how we begin the, the evening. Absolutely. Oh. Yep. Okay, what, what do you think captured Gilbert's imagination? I mean, he, when asked by that journalist, he's pretty vague about, about it and talks rather obviously about, you know, picturesqueness and so forth. But what do you think caught his imagination? Well, I think he was a man that had his hand on the pulse, not his, his finger on the pulse, um, and he was well aware of the incredible interest in Japan. I was going to say, the Japanism boom, it was a bit like you go into almost anybody's house these days, I suspect, and you'll find a bit of Ikea. Um, in those days, you went into pretty much anybody's house, mm. and you'd find a bit of, of Japanese stuff, probably a lot of Japanese stuff, all over the walls. So he knew that this was something that would appeal to his public, and that was pretty important. Um, and the other thing was that he was looking for somewhere that was exotic, very exotic, um, and far away, where he could um, put his, his, his satire of Victorian England. Um, and Japan, for some reason, it had this, not for some reason, it had this image of, of being medieval, of being exotic, of being just massively different. Um, of course, real Japan at that time was not like that at all, but that's a whole other story. Um, <laughs> the people who were so fond of, of, of um, Japanese wasery knew absolutely nothing about real Japanese people. There was a little corner of Japan closer uh, to Gilbert than, than, than those islands far away in the Pacific. Um, there was this celebrated Japanese village that yes. was in, in West London. Now, talk a little bit about that, if you will. Okay. Um, right. This is the poster. This is the poster for the Japanese village in Knightsbridge. Um, we can maybe pass them around. And it was in, uh, it was founded in, or it opened in January 1885. And that date's quite important because it was not that long before uh, the Mikado first came out. So, um, and it was in Humphreys Hall, which was between between, you've got Harrods and you've got Hyde Park, and it's pretty much in that little triangle of land between Harrods and Hyde Park. Um, and it was a kind of uh, um, Victorian Earl's Court, and they transformed it into a Japanese village. And there they had 100 Japanese people, of whom 26 were women and children, and they were all craftsmen, and they were busy making fans, umbrellas, lacquerware, metalwork, be weaving, spinning. So the visitors who flocked in, it was incredibly popular. The visitors could feel that they were walking in a Japanese village. There was a broad street down the middle. There were side roads leading off full of proper Japanese houses with a kind of painted backdrop of Mount Fuji. Um, so people could walk around. They could also go around by rickshaw um, and they could observe what their, their vision of Japan was that it was a land of craftspeople. So here were all these craftspeople busy making all these crafts. Um, they could observe that. They could go and have tea in the tea house served by Japanese tea girls. They didn't even have to go down on their knees. As in Japanese fashion, they had chairs. Mm -hmm. And there's another picture of them having their tea, which is here, um, these Victorian ladies. And um, they could also see 
martial arts, they could see sumo, they could see theater, they could see dancing. Um, so this was all founded by a man called Tanaka Buhikro-san, which is an extremely odd name, which is like a sort of westernized Japanese name. He was half Dutch and half Japanese. Um, and it was started by him. And Japanese who went to this exhibition were extremely disgusted, actually, because they said, well, these are all low-class Japanese. And they're, they're supposedly representing Japan. But, you know, it's a terrible thing that, that English people should think that Japan is, consists entirely of these very low-class artisan types who paint their teeth black. And, and Gilbert visited the village? Um, he definitely visited because, another picture, he took a photograph. Um, this is his, oops, this is his photograph. And this one, I'm afraid the copies are rather terrible, but this is, he did take this photograph. And the other thing he did, um, maybe he may not have done it himself, but he sent somebody to um, hire at least one male dancer and a tea girl to make sure that his actors and actresses could um, walk in Japanese fashion, little steps with their toes turned in, could dance in Japanese fashion. Um, you have to bear in mind that the people teaching them were not professional dancers, though of course Gilbert didn't know this. Um, and also that they could use their fan. Fans were terribly important, so they learned to kind of open the fan and then shut it to express you know, anger or shame or shock. They could giggle behind their fan. Um, and particularly, he wanted them to teach the three little maids from school. So what he's searching for is, is something that will be, I use the word advisedly, but with a very common, authentic. Um, he was, yes. He, he, he did not, I don't think, incorporate very much of the Japanese village in his libretto at all, because it only opened in January and the Mikado went on in March. But he did want local color. So his production was as Japanese as he could make it. It was called a Japanese opera. So he wanted it. Also, he knew that everybody knew about Japanese stuff because they'd been collecting it. They could look at it. They could look at woodblock prints, which I forgot to mention were hugely influencing People like Van Gogh and Degas and, and Monet were busy collecting woodblock prints and also doing lots of paintings of people in the Japanese style. And individual people, women, were wearing kimonos. So if you were a Victorian audience at this minute, some of you might be wearing kimonos. So in other words, his audience had images of what Japan was like, and he had to fit within those images. And therefore he needed to stage them too. So what people saw should seem to be their version of Japan. Should consist, yeah, should be consistent with their image of Japan on every screen and fan. So we're not looking at real Japan here, we're looking at painted Japan. You, you said that some Japanese were offended by uh, the village. Um, were people also offended by what Gilbert had made of, of his version of Japan? In what sense? Well, in the sense that, that, that um, oh, the ambassador mm. of, of Japan, I think, raised a, a, a question. Oh. Ah, now that's a whole different story, but I can tell that story. Um, there was actually, let's see, Jap yeah, there were Japanese journalists who went to see it who were totally horrified. Um, among other things, the, the costumes were, according to Gilbert, very authentic. 
Um, they got costumes from Liberties. The women's costumes were from Liberties. The men's costumes all modelled on the correct sort of archaic model, supposedly. The Mikado's costume, exactly the same as a 200-year-old proper Mikado's outfit. Katisha's costume, an authentic costume. But to Japanese eyes, it was a total mishmash of different eras. Um, and the other problem was that the, Japan, the, the Western actresses were wearing kimonos made for small Japanese ladies. And to Japanese eyes, they looked like they were about to burst open any minute. Um, and, and they, oh, he said the Japanese journalist who wrote about it said they were tied in place with what looked like a sumo wrestler's belt. Um, so the Japanese thought it was extremely, actually, embarrassing. Um, that was what they thought. But the incident to which you're referring happened some years later. Yes, this is when, 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 when the Crown Prince is paying a visit to, uh, to Britain. Um, yep, it was, it was not the Crown Prince, it was Prince Fushimi Sadanobu. And he was one of the collateral branches of the imperial family, so it's a bit like, he was more like a duke. It was kind of like the Duke of Westminster. And he came to England in 1907 in order to receive the Order of the Garter, it was a state visit, on behalf of the emperor from Edward VII. Um, now, the key thing is the date. It was 1907. Um, and in 1905, the Japanese had defeated the Russians um, in, in the, in the uh, Russo-Japanese War. Now, they defeated the Chinese in 1895, 10 years earlier, but that didn't impress anybody because, you know, they're all Asiatics. But they beat the Russians, a very powerful victory in 1905 um, and that put Japan on a totally different footing. So in 1885 when the Mikado came out you could make fun of Japan. 1907 you no longer could make fun of Japan. They were a proper nation they no longer had unequal treaties against them um, and so therefore the Lord Chamberlain all by himself decided that there was to be no productions of the Mikado while Prince Fushimi was in town so as not to offend him. Um, and there was a big kerfuffle in Parliament, a lot of anger in the press. They all said, this is, this is very, very silly. Um, just looking to see what my last picture is. Sorry, this is my last picture, which is, this is the Mikado's first robe, by the way, which I said was supposedly authentic. Um, but just coming back to my story. So um, there was one theatre in Sheffield where the manager said he had, he, he had not officially received the order. So he showed the Mikado. He showed the Mikado. He did one matinee and one evening performance. And there were some Japanese journalists up there. And one of them saw, saw it and he said, well, I was hoping I was going to be really offended, but I was very disappointed. I wasn't offended at all. In fact, all I saw was bright music and lots of fun. <laughs> and Prince Fushimi later said he'd been looking forward to seeing the Mikado when he was in town, and he hadn't been able to. <laughs> well, a last question. Okay. Um, you, you, we talked about the world of topsy-turvydom, where the world is turned up. So you also hinted that this, of course, is maybe set in some notion of Japan, but actually it's about Britain. What, what, what is Gilbert really trying to say about, about, about his own late Victorian England here? Well, he's making lots of fun of lots of stuffy Victorian things. For example, the opera in the opera, flirting is made illegal, isn't it? Which is um, something that's nothing to do with Japan at all. There's a whole lot of stuff to be said about flirting in Japan, but he does not say that in the Mikado. Um, but the whole kind of um, hypocritical Victorian attitude that there were lots of things you could do sort of in private, but you had to in public appear to have this very kind of proper demeanour. 
So some of it's that. Some, and some of it, of course, is the pomposity of somebody like mm. Pooba. But I mean, all his characters are very much Victorian people. They're not, they're not mm. like Japanese people at all, I think. Leslie, stay with us, but thank okay. you very much indeed. Oh, indeed. Thank you. Thank you. Our second guest, ladies and gentlemen, is Mark Biggins, um, who is the chorus master here at English National. Opera. Will you welcome Mark to join us? <laughs> Mark, is this the first time that you've worked on the Mikado? This is the first time. So I'm in my third season here, and this is my first Mikado. And, and it is a piece you knew before? Um, I didn't know it before. It's, the role of chorus master varies depending on what we're doing. When we're doing a new production, uh, there's a, you have a significant creative input into creating a piece. With the Mikado, which is one of our most famous and most often revived productions, I see myself more of a custodian, a temporary custodian for the years that I'm in the house of a piece. If you imagine that uh, one of the members of the chorus who will appear on stage this evening uh, was in the original and has been in every single revival and this is the 50th anniversary of his first singing on the stage at the Colosseum, which is quite remarkable. And so there's a bit of, often I teach the chorus, but sometimes the chorus teach me. And definitely in the Mikado, there's been a lot of them teaching me because they have made this piece uh, what it is. What, what would you say is the role of the chorus in this piece? Um, one of the things which I love in particular about the chorus's work in Gilbert and Sullivan uh, is uh, I sit there in the box and you just... Often they're on the stage observing the action, you know, he hearing what people are saying, and there's all these kind of wonderful little little stories going on in corners of the room on the on the set between individuals, and you get a feeling that every um, uh, that every chorister has got a little detailed character study going on somewhere on the stage, and I think that's something that has developed wonderfully in this production. Um, I'm sure Elaine will be able to tell you more about that too. But uh, it's that feeling of there being people there who are watching and hearing everything that's going on. And how demanding is the music Sullivan writes for them? Um, the demands of, uh, of Sullivan's music are enormous, actually. Um, one of the things that he does is he divides the chorus. Uh, so the first few numbers are only for the gents' chorus, the tenors and basses, uh, and then the next few numbers are for ladies' chorus only. So that means there are half as many people on the stage. You've got a 2,500-seat hall to fill um, with sound. Uh, and more so, perhaps, with, with Gilbert's libretto, you know, it is crucially important to us that you can hear every single word, you know, that you will never need to look at Look at the surtitles, we hope. Uh, and that, um, that is another kind of vocal demand, uh, honesty of the text as well. Do you have a sense that the Mikado is, as some people often feel, different from the other great Gilbert and Sons, you know, the Gondoliers, uh, Pirates of Penzance, uh, Iolanthe? Um... I, I see a lot of the same, you know, a lot of the same traits. The chorus treatment is very similar. He he loves to divide the chorus into two troops. You know, have gents on one side, ladies on the other. Then bring them together at some point later on. Later on in the opera, Iolanthe has an identical conceit. Is actually the opposite way around. Starts with the ladies, then the gents, and then they all come together for a big act one finale. So you do have a feeling, and and the musical writing. Uh, you know, it's similar to opera seria in terms of there are there are kind of lots of different types of numbers that he has in his box, uh, and then he kind of brings them out at certain moments. And I feel that that's quite uh, quite similar. But I mean, I think that the Mikado is uh, you know it's it's out of the top drawer of of of, of Sullivan's work along with a, with a couple of others. And what is it that makes 
this score so memorable? Um, well, I was thinking about this. Uh, the you were talking about the Mia Sama chorus and the, the the very opening of the piece. It's difficult to imagine now what it would have sounded like in 18, 1885. Um, it's an extraordinary start to an opera uh, and would probably have been immediately transportational for, 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 for the audience who first heard it. And I do think that those... Uh, and so often the music that he... Um, the, the Japanese music, if you will, that he's writing is often in, in, in total unison. So there's no harmony whatsoever. It'll be a kind of a very simple melody um, uh, and often just percussion on its own, a bass drum beating. And so that kind of throws relief then on the rest of the colour and the orchestral colour that he has in the score, that you have these kind of moments of, 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 of Japanese musical flavour, if you want. We, we know, as I, and I said at the beginning, that Sullivan had to be dragged to the altar with this particular piece. And yet the irony is that he writes a consummately successful score. Um, I mean, I wonder if he doth protest too much. I mean, his desire, as we know, to want to write serious opera. Um, in the event, I mean, those who've had the misfortune to hear Ivanhoe know perhaps he wasn't cut out to write Verdian-style opera. So, so, so what do you think is going on psychologically with, with Sullivan about this music? Um, I... This is something which you see in, in many people who are hugely successful at something, that, you know, the thing that they're successful at is just not the thing that they would love to be doing. Um, uh, but I don't know, it's funny because in, the music is totally irrepressible. Um, you know, the, the con continuous stream of, of wit and charm. I also think that he had, you know, the most amazing collaborator. When we, what we find, although the libretti uh, on Often for the Chorus are very wordy, a lot of words to learn, lots of chorus music. It's incredibly easy to learn because the, the text is so, it's not obvious or, or straightforward, but it's so highly virtuosic and incredibly well-crafted. Mm. And I do think uh, that to have that collaboration you know, evidently brought uh, all the best out of Sullivan's work. And he does know how to set <coughs> Gilbert in a way that, that you can't imagine any other 19th century composer doing. No, no, not at all. I mean, it's... Um, it, it, yeah, virtuosic is the word that always comes to mind when I'm looking at the, the crafting of words and music together and the fact that, you know, it is performed acoustically in a two and a half thousand seat theatre and it still sparkles, you know, a text and also feels, you know, very alive and still somewhat current, you know, 130 years later. Turning to the soloists, I mean, one aspect really only, the, the celebrated patter songs mm. that, that Gilbert writes these, you know, machine gun rhythms and phrases for, <laughs> and Sullivan sets exactly the same thing musically. Are these the challenge? Is this, is this the most difficult corner of this musically? Um, it certainly is one of the great challenges. And of course, you know, this is not... Uh, Sullivan didn't invent the patter song. Uh, Italian opera has been full of patter songs uh, throughout the 19th century. Um, the difference for us uh, is that, of course, that this is our language. So in patter songs, you also want to understand every word. So Pistosh's uh, uh, first aria, uh, telling the story of the Mikado, I mean, you want to know every single word, every single word, and he doesn't have a chance to breathe for about three minutes. It's absolutely extraordinary. Um, Yes, and that's, you know, practice, I'd say. It's a great skill. Um, coming in from a faint left field here, but um, when I was growing up, these were referred to as operettas. We now call them operas. I, I know that one should be wary of descriptions, but it is true that what we've got here isn't operetta in the sense that we think opera. It is, in fact, opera. Uh, 
I, 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 I'm reminding myself back to you know my university days of doing a course on opera. You know what is opera? Um, the fact that there is so much normally it's an operetta because there is so much dialogue. In the same way that you'd make a distinction uh, in Mozart, perhaps. Um, uh, so it is it is a, a number operetta with musical numbers interspersed with spoken dialogue, um, and. Uh, I do think for the singers, their approach is, is in some sense operatic some of the time, and then sometimes operatic, depending on what Sullivan is going for at the time. So in, um, in some of the biggest vocal numbers, of course, the singers are absolutely engaging with, in some sense, their, their Italian operatic sound to give you the most beautiful, the most beautiful sound that you can have. But then also in a patter song in English, it's all about the characterization and the kind of lightness of the sound. Well, begins. thank you very much indeed. Thanks. Stay with us. <laughs> Our final guest this evening is Elaine Tyler Hall, who has revived this Jonathan Miller production of The Mikado. Will you please welcome Elaine Tyler Hall? Like when you first saw this production, can you remember what you thought about it? Um, well, I saw it from the other side. I was 31 years ago, believe it or not, I was one of the dancers. 31 years ago, you wouldn't think of it now, but I was. So um, I was always and am very sad that I was never in it first time round. I was in it second time round. Um, and it's, it was the first job I had here. Uh, and it's come full circle, so it's been very exciting for me to do this show. And, and what about updating it to a 1930s luxury hotel? What, what's going on there? This is very much Jonathan's way of working, and I think he is such a genius. If you think of his great productions here, which Rigoletto, which he updated to Mafia New York, um, Elysee, which was in a, a, a diner, um, and this, you know, he has this sort of wonderful way of looking at an opera, operetta, um, with a kind of very clear eye of how he can put this production somewhere that will make complete sense and make, make sense of the madness that is Mikado. Is this a reference, a Hollywood reference too, as well as being a luxurious Art Deco hotel. Is this Fred and Ginger? Is this Astaire and Rogers? Um, um, uh, in one of those extraordinary hotels in their films, Franco, where anything can and does happen. Is that the, the conceit? I wish I was around, first time around, to know that hear the conversations between Jonathan and Stefan Lazaridis, who was the designer at the time, and Sue Blaine, who did the costumes. I know Jonathan pretty well now, and he's a great film buff. Um, he loves films, and he has a wicked sense of humour, as you all know, uh, and he loves uh, the Marx Brothers movies. So rather than Fred and Ginger, I think it's more a Marx Brothers movie. And I have a feeling that he saw probably A Night at the Opera, and he saw Margaret Dumont, um, and he thought, this is Katisha. She, you know, she just is that character. And I have a feeling, although he's never said it directly to me, that that's his starting point. 
To what extent does the opera belong not to Cathy Show? Now, fascinating that you should have thought possibly this is Margaret <laughs> Dumont. I've often wondered yeah. that too. But does it really belong to Coco and to Poobah, to the, to, to the uh, would-be uh, Lord High Executioner and, and the impossible public servant? It's, it's difficult to know. It's such a fantastically crafted plot, which has twists and turns and ups and downs, and you think this is never going to resolve itself, and of course it does. Uh, and Coco and Pubar are very much part of... You know, they, they drive this plot along. Um, but in a sense, I think that the dialogue belongs to Pubar and Coco and that the music belongs to the lovers. In, I mean, that's incredibly, you know, being very general terms. But if you listen to the text of Coco and Poobah, it's so brilliant, so funny, so witty. The use of, of words are, is extraordinary. And, uh, of course, it's difficult to balance dialogue with musical numbers. It's a real... Uh, it's a real challenge, particularly in this theatre, because it's so large, to make the dialogue s sort of sparkle in the same way that you can make the music sparkle. And um, the Coco and Poobah dialogue is so clever that it really does sparkle in the same way that the music does. Is the piece, as Leslie suggests, really about England, Victorian England, at what it thought was the height of its glory? Yes, I... I Absolutely. I mean, Jonathan always said, you know, that uh, um, it's it's not about Japan at all, which it's of course it's not. And uh, Jonathan always found very funny that the um, that there were sort of nursery rude rude words for the names, and and so uh, you know, yum yum, and and the and the double entendre of yum yum as we go through the piece is is quite clear. Um, but so no, I don't think it's it really has anything to do with Japan at all, and it's about um, these people who who are uh, have very inflated ideas of their importance in the world, uh, Poobar and Coco particularly, you know, that they've um, crafted and carved out their place in, in the world of Titipu, but in a very British way, you know, of Coco, who really is a fairly um, unprepossessing, untalented man who's managed to get himself all the way to the top, and Poobar, who takes all the jobs uh, only because nobody else will do them, but it doesn't necessarily mean he does them very well. <laughs> um, and telling to what you've done with it, how do you set about reviving a, a show like this? What do you actually do? Is there a, a book? Is there a kind of guide that says, this is what we did? What would happen? It's such a difficult question to answer what how how do i do it um there is a book uh, the staff director's job is to make a note of, of everything that people do and why they do it and that's in a score um it's if i if i'm reviving a piece uh you know it, it helps if i've been around it from the beginning um but i've almost been around this piece from the beginning i've been around it for more than 30 years so i i do know it very well um that helps um and you just need to know what every single person on that stage is doing at all times and why they are there and, and, and how they are doing it. So it, it, it's, um, it, it, it's a complicated thing to try and keep 
the, the, those everybody's plots running through your head the whole time. But it's such fun to do that. Is it more difficult to revive a work like this that's become a kind of seminal work for this company? Um, much loved, um, seen, I guess, now by parents who bring children, etc. Et Is it more difficult to revive something that's such a success? It's not more difficult. I think that you always have to give complete, you know, 100% care to a revival. I think it's very important. If something's good enough to revive it, it's good enough to revive it as well as you possibly can. Um, and a, a bit like Mark, um, for this, the chorus will come and tell me very quickly if they think I've done something incorrectly. Um, so I'm kept on my toes. Um, but it is a wonderful piece, and, and we all love it. This, it, it. It's such fun in this company to do this piece each time because the, the love from the chorus, from the principals, if they've done it before, if they're new, they know about it, from the technicians backstage, from the wardrobe, everybody loves it and feels like it is a, a kind of describes what our company is. How much can you change? Ooh, um, I can't change. I, that's not true. I, I don't want to change anything. That's not what I'm here for. What I'm here for is to try and marry the wonderful production, the ideas that are within it, the, the jokes, the blocking of it, the reason why it's done, with different casts. You know, we've been here for 30 years, 30 plus years, and so we've had many yum yums over the years, and a few Mikados and a couple of Cocos. Um, so the main characters change. We have new personalities on the stage. They are wonderful performers in their own right, uh, and they can bring something to it themselves which is new and fresh. And that's, that's what I think is very important, is keeping the freshness of a piece. I think I've been to various shows that have been running for a long time in the West End, and sometimes you think, oh, this has just lost the life. It's accurate. Everybody's doing what they need to do very well. But that life, that sparkle has disappeared out of their eyes. And I, that's what I think my main job is. You know, the production is what it is, and, and it's well recorded, and we can reproduce that. But what we need to get is the life onto the stage. If I, if I pushed you and asked you what have you changed this time? What would you say? I don't think I've changed anything. Not, I mean, change, change is a different thing to... Uh, you can have subtle nuances of performance, or you can subtly change the way that you sing or say a word, or the way that you do an action. Um, but change, I think, is not part of my brief. It, it's interesting, I, talking to other directors who um, uh, look after other people's productions, many often say that you come to a production, uh, if you do it more than once, and, and suddenly you see new things, you see fresh uh, views of... Has this been the case this time with you, with, with, with Mikado, that you, you've seen different things in it? It has, so we've, we've had a new Nanki Poo and a new Yum Yum this time. And so uh, they... It's, it's seeing the, the way that they respond to each other and, and the kind of 
hate the word, but the chemistry between them when they're working together. Um, they they find different ways of of timing something. They might want to make eye contact at a certain point, or look away, or move, or or have a gap, or have a, you know. Th there are things that they want to do slightly differently, um, and so I think that that, that is where the where the uh, the kind of nuanced, subtle changes lie. Many of us feel that this was the production of a Gilbert and Sullivan opera that liberated Gilbert and Sullivan from something of a straitjacket. Uh, I mean, those um, my generation who saw uh, these operas mostly on tour um, with the celebrated Dolly Cart Company couldn't believe that this, there were other ways of doing it. Is that your view too? This is a kind of cry of freedom about a great piece. I think so. I think that this was this was produced just at the time where the idea of um, a director with very imaginative ideas and a set designer and a costume designer, all of whom had equal uh, kind of equal say in what the production ended up being, and those three people being Jonathan Miller, Stefan Lazaridis, and Sue Blaine, the three of them getting together and putting something onto the stage was m greater than the sum of its parts. I think it was an extraordinary, extraordinarily important production of its time. Ladies and gentlemen, we have a, a little time in hand, and so we, you, we could are uh, invited to ask questions of the panel. Um, there is a, the celebrated Eno roving microphone. Um, <laughs> if you like to put your hand up and wave at me vigorously, then we'll direct the microphone to you. But wait till it gets to you. In the front row. Uh, where do you store all the sets and the costumes, and how long do you keep these for other productions? When do you decide to throw them away? There, we keep everything in. We have stores down in Marden and various places, so we have huge um, stores where the, the sets and the costumes are kept. Um, and we keep them for quite a long time, but there comes a time when storage space runs out, and occasionally there is a cull. So, sadly, you know, some of our great productions, like the old Lady Macbeth and Sensk, that, that those unfortunately those do not exist anymore which is a real sadness but we you know we try and keep them running as long as we can another question yes in row three wait till the microphone gets to you it's on its way um the lady next to you i just wanted to ask Leslie Dana. yes um with puccini and madama butterfly um, was that part of, like, as you said, this whole Japanese thing that was going on and also in Italy as well? And then were, was Gilbert and Sullivan uh, influenced by Puccini's production? Um, it was the other way around. Oh, was it? Uh, right. Oh, <laughs> Gilbert and Sullivan um, did the Mikado in 1885. Um, Puccini's opera came out in 1904. Um, Brief plug, I've actually written a book about the Japanese geisha who was the model for Madame Butterfly. Um, and Puccini was in England um, to see David Belasco's 
theatre production of Madame Butterfly, which was, it began as a play in around 1900. Um, and one of the key things was that the, Japanese, the people in the Japanese village were all travelling players. They were all kind of low-class artisans. They were not trained dancers. Um, Sadiako, who was the model for Madame Butterfly, who I wrote about, was the first professional... She was a geisha, she was a professional dancer, and she then became a professional actress. And so Puccini based his kind of depiction of a Japanese woman on her. Um, so, but according to Chris, um, Puccini had a, an annotated copy of the Mikado in his villa in... Uh, Torre del Lago. Torre del Lago, yes. So, so it's like 20 years difference. But so he was influenced by Gilford and Sullivan. But also I think both of them would have been influenced just by the fact that everybody was mad about Japan. So the madness about Japan had carried on until Puccini's time. I'm, I'm just going to add one little footnote to Leslie's eloquent response, which is in fact the production of Madame Butterfly that, that Puccini came to see at uh, David Belasco's play was actually just up the street in the Duke of York's theatre. Yeah. So I used to love to my thinking um, that he could walk down here and have walked past a house that now does his own opera. Anyway, can thank I, you. Can I butt yeah. in? Yeah, can do. I butt in that when, um, when David Belasco was in town to do this theatre production of Madame Butterfly and at the end of the production, at the end of the play, at the end of the performance, this wild Italian came running backstage saying, crying, crying, and saying, I have to do an opera about this, please let me, and kind of grabbed him by the coat. And <laughs> David Belasco, okay, okay, fine, go away. <laughs> so anyway, that was Puccini. <laughs> We've time for one more question. And, uh, right, we'll take two. Let's start over there, the gentleman with the beard. And then we'll come to the front row for our last question. There's been reference with the present political upheaval to how uh, topical so many of the patter songs are still today. <laughs> um, and you wouldn't need to rewrite them. And yet there's been a tradition in recent productions of creating a new little list so many times. Is that the right thing to do or not? Um, I think that's one for Elaine. <laughs> um, Richard Seward, who's, who's our co-co and has been for many years, uh, always writes his own list and has for 30 years. Um, and he's very even-handed, but not kind to anybody. BBC <laughs> <laughs> balance, I hear now. <laughs> yeah. uh, the final question in the front row. The microphone's on its way. Um, can I ask the chorus master? Sorry, I can't remember your name, Mark. sir. Yes, Mark. Um, um, I speak as a, a member of an amateur company. Uh, we've, um, we always have a problem with not enough men. Um, uh, could I ask you how big your chorus is and how much rehearsal time do you have with them, typically? So the chorus, the full-time chorus here is 44. Uh, I was actually just saying to Elaine earlier that the chorus used to be much larger and in fact was divided into two choruses who would do, and the chorus W and chorus Y, who would do smaller shows, so Y might be doing Figaro and W would be doing the, uh, the Mikado and then they'd come together to do Aida. So actually there are 34 choristers who appear in this show, which was because when it was premiered in the 80s, that was one of the half choruses. And so then you would always be in the Mikado uh, and then wouldn't be in something else. Uh, what was the, uh, sorry, what was the, oh, how many rehearsals? Oh yes, originally a lot, but now, I mean, one of the things is this piece is in their bones. So, I mean, we did total maybe eight rehearsals from, from uh, two music rehearsals, three rehearsals with Elaine in the studio and then a couple of stage rehearsals and we're on. And, you know, they remember it absolutely perfectly. Can I, can I just butt in? Is that, um, <laughs> 
although many of the choristers have done this before, we had eight new choristers this time, which is a quite a big proportion of them. And for three, three rehearsals with me, I think that they did amazingly well. And I would also like to say that part of the kind of the, the, the amazing part of this company is that the chorus, the, the old choristers took the new choristers under their wings and really helped. Without, without their help, I would not have got through the work I needed to do. So it was, it was yeah. great. The, the clock has beaten as if you're to get to the house in time to see the show. Um, some thank yous. Thank you to all of you for being a really splendid audience. Um, thank you to those who asked questions. But an even bigger, a bigger thank you to our guests, Leslie Downer, Mark Biggins and Elaine Tyler Hall. Thank you very much indeed. <laughs>